calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Realm presents Book Burners, Season 2, Episode 7. One. When Grace's candle was out, the others said that she was asleep. But it was nothing like sleep. Grace did not dream. When consciousness returned, she was not granted a groggy transition to the waking world. She had no active subconscious to blur and ease the hard edges of reality. In a leaf that would have made Descartes proud, one moment Grace was not, and then she was. It was dark, pre-dawn, she guessed, from the quality of sounds coming through her drawn shutters. Grace blinked to clear her eyes. Sometimes they didn't quite close and got dry and dusty. What's going on, she said, trying to bring the room into focus. Asante said, I wanted to ask you something. Grace immediately sat up, eyes finally confirming what her ears had told her. What is Asante doing here? What have I missed this time? What happened? Where's Manchu? Nothing's happened. He's fine, said Asante. In a heartbeat, confusion and fear turned to irritation. Is this an emergency? No. Then ask me later. Grace closed her eyes, reached back, and pinched out the candle flame that had brought her to life for no purpose other than Asante's curiosity. She had time to think, ten seconds gone, before there was nothing. Grace had no sense of time when it passed without her, but she didn't think more than a few seconds could have elapsed before she was once again looking up at Asante's concerned face. Asante's clothes hadn't changed. The light, or lack thereof from outside, was the same. Her own eyes were still clear and moist. I'm sorry, Asante said. Grace sighed. Telling her to apologize later and put out the candle again would clearly be counterproductive. Quicker just to hear her out. But the next time they were all in transit together, oh, the two of them would have words about using her time without permission. What do you want? asked Grace. I'm sorry, Asante repeated. I know your time is precious. 
But I need to ask you something, and I wanted to be sure that we could be alone. Grace raised an eyebrow. If you could live normally again, without the candle, would you still want to? What kind of question is that? Do you think I would have chosen to tie my life to a candle? Grace rose to her feet in outrage. No, but this is the life you've been given. I've watched you over the years. You've become accustomed to living with it. Asante stopped just short of touching her with a placating hand. Good choice. Grace felt sick to her stomach. She did not want to have this conversation. Roads not taken were better left unmapped. She wanted to put out her candle, end this now. But she had a feeling that was the kind of reaction Asante was talking about. What normal person was so matter-of-fact about extinguishing their consciousness? What are you talking about? I'm still, I'm still a person. Asante spoke gently. Of course you are. But you used to worry about getting hurt as if you had a normal body. You don't anymore. Your situation is not ideal, but I didn't want to assume that you would want to give it up. The feeling in Grace's stomach shifted again into an emotion she had not known in a very long time. Is this a hypothetical question, or have you found something? Not yet. But Aunt Julie's approval to look for a way to fix the orb opens the door for the society to take a more proactive stance toward magic and magical phenomena in general. Asante's eyes shone with the possibilities. Now I can go on the offensive. I can look in earnest for a way to cure your condition, not just hope to stumble across a miracle as we do our job. But if you'd rather I didn't, I won't. Grace gestured to herself. A magical mystery like this. You just leave it. If you ask me to, said Asante. And the thing was, Grace believed her, which only made the original question more complex. Asante gathered herself and stood. You don't have to answer now. I don't want to take up more of your time than I have to. But I wanted to ask. She paused at the door. Is there anything else you need that I can get for you? Uh, books? Uh, shoes? Grace shook her head. Asante laughed. Lost in thought, Grace barely noticed as the room gradually lightened with the rising sun. Manchu was an early riser and used to coming into the archives before the rest of his team. Or occasionally, if Liam or Asante had been drawn in by a particularly intriguing area of research, coming in before the other members of his team realized they had worked through the night. Still, at seven in the morning, he usually had the corridors of the Vatican to himself. Today, Sansoni waited for him outside the archives. Buongiorno, he said. Sansoni did not bother with pleasantries. There's a meeting of the selection committee, tasked with choosing a permanent replacement for Cardinal Verano. You need to be there. Manchu sensed a trap. Why, the committee is a formality. Once His Holiness confirms Monsignor and Julie's promotion to cardinal, the committee will approve him as a matter of course. Sansone shrugged. Hopefully. Hopefully, asked Manchu. Don't tell me someone from outside the society wants the job. Yes, it was a quick route to a cardinal's beretta, but anyone ambitious enough to care about that was usually put off by the utter lack of official recognition for the post or the stipulation that the head of the society was forbidden from ever becoming pope. Not that I've heard, said Sansoni. Then why is it so important that I attend a meeting of a committee on which I do not serve, and whose decision is already a foregone conclusion? Because if we don't appear in the next few minutes, someone will call Asante and tell her that the meeting is taking place. Manchu took a moment to consider his next words carefully. 
I take it you are the reason that she is not already aware of it. I am sure it was a bureaucratic oversight. You know how these things can happen. Menchu paused. Was this maneuver just an example of Sansone's occasionally brute force approach to political expedience, or was she aware of the tension between Asante and him as of late? And if she was, how did she know? There had been no implication that she had followed Balloon and Stretch's example and put Team 3 under surveillance. But then again, Sansone wouldn't have allowed herself to get caught. It was also possible that politics before morning tea were making him just a little paranoid. Santi has been a close friend and co-worker for many years, he said. And she will thank you for this, trust me. Now, come on. Sansoni's exasperated sigh was easily translated as, what kind of amateur do you think I am? Suspecting this was a decision that would come back to haunt him, Father Menchu allowed himself to be led away. And to Menchu's great relief, someone on the committee had had the forethought to request a tea and coffee service in consideration of the early hour. Munchu gulped his first caffeine of the morning from a delicate porcelain cup and spared a thought to wonder if the china pattern had been originally selected by a Vatican functionary or by some medieval pope's mistress. The committee was gathered in a room filled with furniture that in any other city in the world would have been a museum. Here, a mismatched set of 19th century chairs had all found their way around a massive 17th century table, and the resulting room arrangement was now known as Conclave II. Alas, even Latin couldn't make a meeting room exotic. Manchu also noted that Sansoni didn't leave a polite chair between them when she sat down, but placed herself immediately to Manchu's left. Apparently, they were here to present a united front. And just as well, since Manchu still had no idea what he was supposed to be doing. Sure, in theory, it was a good idea to have members of the society actually present and weighing in on who the permanent head of their organization should be. The society was rather slight in the personnel department, at least as far as such things went inside the church. Three, formerly four, teams, each with a titular leader who reported to a monsignor. The monsignors, in turn, reported to a cardinal. The cardinal answered only to his holiness the pope and God, not necessarily in that order. Though, if the cardinal had to take recourse with either one, something had gone horribly wrong. Most groups within the church would have added three to a half a dozen more layers of hierarchy between the bottom and the top. The demands of secrecy and expediency had created a streamlined system of oversight, which meant you appreciated most of the time. But it did leave them a bit at loose ends when the time came to fill an administrative vacancy. Monsignor Anjuli could not serve on the committee as he was the chief candidate for the post it was seeking to fill. The other Monsignors were, by custom and definition, the top alternate choices, and so were not considered impartial selectors either, which meant the committee itself was composed of two Vatican clerks, a senior monk, and a sister whom Manchu suspected had been roped in because their orders provided housing for two members of his team, and a handful of others who hadn't ducked fast enough when someone had come around looking for volunteers. Oh, and a cardinal, because you always needed a cardinal. An ancient Vatican careerist there to formally approve of whoever was to be promoted to the Brotherhood in red. The cardinal in question had just concluded a short invocation to ask the blessing of the Trinity upon the group's deliberations when the committee was joined by another observer, Monsignor Fox, the man in charge of overseeing Team One. At his entrance, Sansoni lifted an eyebrow toward Manchu as if to say, you see? Actually, Menchu didn't see, until Fox began to speak. 
In contrast to Aunt Julie, Fox was a broad and solid man, edging toward his later middle years without any of the expected softening in his build or manner. Like the team he was responsible for, he was blunt, direct, took no prisoners, and left no survivors. The language of diplomacy when he tried to use it fell from his mouth like poorly fitting cast-offs. Begging the indulgence of this committee, Fox began, then discarded the attempt. The breach of Team Four's vault was dangerous, stupid, and should never have been authorized. The silence that greeted this pronouncement was both awkward and profound. A woman in a habit cleared her throat. This is not an oversight, Committee Monsignor. Yes, put in a gray-suited functionary, and the excursion of which you speak was duly approved and authorized by, by Monsignor on Julie, Fox finished, who was unwilling to say no to anything proposed by his former team. Archivist DeSanti is shamelessly taking advantage of this leniency and a general lack of control in order to turn Team 3 into a laboratory for her own pet projects. The society has been tasked with keeping magic locked out of our world, and where that is not possible, destroyed or contained. If my colleague is not willing to maintain that line, it is my opinion that he should not be confirmed in this interim position. Sansoni leaned toward Manchu, taking an unused tube of sugar from his saucer and murmuring, this is why you needed to be here. Manchu knew his cue, signaled that he would like to speak, and took the floor. With respect to Monsignor Fox, I believe he is misrepresenting the current situation within Team 3 and the society. The tide is rising. What we have done for hundreds of years may no longer be sufficient or even wise. Archivist Dasanti believes, and I agree with her, that we cannot afford to sit on top of mysteries that we do not fully understand. In the case of Team 4's disused facilities, I mean on top of very literally. Now this change scared the hell out of him, Manchu kept to himself. Sansone picked up this thread in her turn, if I might add. Manchu relaxed into his seat and noticed several others in the room sag slightly, perhaps with the growing suspicion that the committee would have to order in for lunch. We can imagine many potential futures. Some serve as inspiration, others, warnings. Wondery offers one possibility of the future in their new show, The Last City. The year is 2072, and the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geo-engineered paradise that protects fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. Demetria Lopez heads up Pura's public relations, tirelessly promoting the city's idyllic image. But when she stumbles upon a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. You may not be on an elite team of investigators fighting the dangers of magic, but that doesn't mean you have to be defenseless when it comes to protecting your data online. Lucky for you, our partners at NordVPN know their way around the World Wide Web. 
VPN stands for Virtual Private Network, which creates a sort of encrypted tunnel while you're online, protecting your private data like bank details and passwords, so you can browse safely wherever you are in the world. In addition to providing you with a high level of security online, my favorite use of NordVPN is to virtually switch my location, so I can watch movies and shows that aren't currently available in my area. Plus, that way I can still access my favorite content when I'm traveling as well. I'm a fan of pretty much any British TV show, but they aren't always available in the US, so with NordVPN, I can virtually travel across the pond to enjoy my telly. NordVPN is also the fastest VPN in the world, and you can get all that speed, protection, and virtual locations for the price of just a coffee a month. To get the best discount off your NordVPN plan, go to nordvpn.com bookburners. Our link will also give you four extra months on the two-year plan. There's no risk with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee. Two. The meeting did not quite make it to lunch, although only because several members of the committee abruptly remembered that they had urgent appointments or other duties when the Vatican worker came in to clear the second round of coffee and pastries. Sansone walked at Menchu's elbow as they left the room and returned to the society's wing. You handled that well, she said, for someone who isn't a politician. Sansoni made a disdainful noise. Leave the dissimulation to the professionals, Arturo. You've always been political. You've just never concerned yourself with society politics before. Have you been reading my dossier? Who do you think wrote your dossier? And then you'd know that getting away from politics was a benefit of becoming a member of the society, not a drawback. I certainly didn't join to further my aspirations for power and glory within the church. No, said Sansoni. You did it for the same reason you do anything that matters. You had a calling. I respect that. But your habit of using Team 3 to do what you felt called to do, asking forgiveness instead of permission, and letting us or Team 1 clean up the mess, only worked because you had Anjuli and Asante running interference. Now, Anjuli doesn't have the bandwidth, and Asante has a shiny new toy. You're going to have to do your own maneuvering if Asante strode around the corner, rapidly closing with them, and Sansoni let the thought die unfinished. You know, said Asante to Sansoni when she was close enough for her quiet words to carry, I would be happy to run interference if I were informed of the occasion and the need. She nodded to Manchu, Arturo. Manchu took a breath and reminded himself that no matter how annoyed Asante might be, he hadn't actually done anything wrong. Not technically. Asante, good morning, if barely. Barely morning or barely good? Why wasn't I informed that there was a meeting of the selection committee? Sansone stepped in. Manchu didn't know about the meeting until I dragged him off before his first mug of tea. If you're going to be mad at someone, be mad at me. Asante glared. Manchu vouches for you, but your team went rogue under your supervision. Either you can't keep track of your people, or you tacitly approved of what Desmet and DeVos were up to. Either way, you were willing to feed them to the dogs in the end. And now you've decided to insert yourself into our team as well? No need to worry. I have plenty of mad for both of you. Sansoni didn't blink. Monsignor Fox is on the warpath over Team 3's breaking into Team 4's facilities, and he's decided that it's your fault. If you'd shown up, it would have been like placing a lightning rod in the middle of a storm. Given that it was my idea, blaming me is only appropriate. Then the hit will come later, and you can have the fight you seem to want. But I desire Anjuli to be confirmed as cardinal as much as both of you do. And you getting into a pissing match with Fox doesn't help that happen. 
Asante looked Menchu. He sighed. For what it's worth, that is what happened in the meeting. I probably should have let you know, though. Yes, Asante said. Then she paused. I'm sure you are able to accurately assess the politics of the situation. If you say that my presence would not have been an asset, I believe you. But I resent the implication that if you had explained all of this to me beforehand, I would have insisted on going anyway. I thought we trusted each other, Arturo. With that, Asante turned on her heel and strode away down the corridor. That could have gone better, Menchu observed to her retreating back. It isn't like I gave you much of an option when I dragooned you into this, said Sansoni. Thank you, Menchu told her, but I am an adult. I know how to send a text message. Disquieted, Menchu took his leave of Sansoni and made his own way back to the archives. As he walked, he reflected that Sansoni was not often wrong. She had certainly read him accurately. The society and their work was a calling, the church as well. All the bureaucracy that came along with them both. Well, it was better to have the support and structure than not, and the resources of the Vatican were useful enough to make the annoyances worth it. In the end, it was the work that mattered. Manchu was the last to arrive in the archives that morning, and Sal could not help but notice that he did not greet Asante as he passed her desk. It was possible that it didn't mean anything. They might have already seen each other, or he could have pressing business. But as both spent the morning engrossed in what could only be described as busy work, the tension in the room began to mount. While the two were not outwardly hostile to each other, they were aggressively civil, and that was just a little too let's not fight in front of the children to be comfortable. Sal approached Liam's desk. You have got to find us something to investigate. Menchu is going nuts with all of the politicking, and he and Asante really need to not be in the same room for a while. Liam let out a breath. What do you want me to do? The orb has thrown off nothing but static, Sansoni hasn't given us anything, and all my usual sources are quiet. Then look past your usual sources, scour the internet. I don't care if it all turns out to be a big load of nothing in the end, we just have to get back to normal. And the quickest way to do that is to get out there and do our job. Our job of chasing down fake leads? Sal crossed her arms and pinned Liam with a raised eyebrow. Are you telling me that the only way you can find real magic to investigate is to either use more magic or Sansone? Liam glared. Low blow, Brooks. Sal left him to his computer. I don't play fair, I play for keeps. By the next day, the amazing powers of data mining and many, many cups of coffee had led Liam to a genuine lead. There's something going on in Antakya. All right, said Sal. I'll play the ignorant American. Where is Antakya? Turkey, said Manchu. Any details on what something is? I got a ping on an urban legends board about a possible new photo of the Slender Man, which was nothing at all. But once I was looking in the area, it turns out there is a lot of weird stuff going on. A spike in false alarm calls to the police. Uh, the hospitals are reporting patients with anxiety and panic attacks or hallucinations. Specifically, hallucinations of a man with a donkey, which is a weird thing to be just in the zeitgeist. And the reports are still coming in. Any official response from the authorities? It doesn't seem to be dangerous yet. So the locals are mostly telling people that it's all in their heads and everything is normal. That's good, at least, said Grace. Why, asked Sal. Fewer people in our way. 
And the fewer people who can figure out that there really is something going on and start a panic, said Liam. It does sound like you should all check it out, said Asante. Sal really did not want to derail the train of potentially getting the team back to work and hopefully normalcy. But the question of local authorities triggered something in the cop section of her brain. Do we have to let Alexandria know that we're coming or anything? I mean, this is more their part of the world than ours, and, and it isn't like they don't know about magic. Asante gave Sal a look, which she translated as, that's adorable. Sal, she said, the library at Alexandria is a library. We are an archive. Sal suspected that there was probably a world where a sentence like that made sense. She didn't want to go there. Still, she pressed, but there are places we aren't allowed to go, like China. Manchu stepped in. Yes, but no matter how close Turkey is to Egypt, it wouldn't matter because the society always has jurisdiction and locations of significance to the Roman Empire. Antakya was formerly known as Antioch, a major trading city of the empire from ancient times all the way through the rise of early Christianity, added Asante. Manchu shot her a look and muttered, thank you for that. Sal hurried to break the tense silence that followed. So, that's why there are so many Saint so-and-sos of Antioch. Liam snorted, but ran with the distraction. What do you know from saying anyone? I thought you were a proddy. Sal gestured to the room around them, and by extension, the Vatican itself. Hello, I've been working here for more than a year now. You pick stuff up. Asante rolled her eyes and made shooing motions at the three of them. Go pack your bags. I'll give one of the ducklings to arrange your flights. Manchu and Asante, Sal noticed, did not say goodbye or make eye contact as he left the archives. Still, as she went to pack her bag, Sal's heart felt lighter than it had in weeks. They had a lead. They were off to investigate weird shit and put a stop to it, just like old times. Three. The emergency vehicles had all converged on a street in one of the older sections of Antakya. Stone houses stood right up against the road, one next to the other, presenting an unbroken wall to outsiders. Without Manchu having to say a word, Grace parked the van a few blocks away from the emergency cordon so that they could approach on foot without being noticed by the officers tasked with keeping curious onlookers away from the scene. She didn't have to look to know that he would have slipped his collar into his pocket as they left their vehicle, transforming himself from a priest into a tanned man in a black suit. Grace liked that she didn't have to think about these things. In her life, where wars could start in the space between blinks, it was good to have touchstones to rely on. What if? Grace yanked her attention back to the here and now. She had a job, a purpose, no time for daydreams. On an ordinary night, this was probably a quiet street. Tonight, in addition to the emergency workers, it looked like half the residents were awake and out of their houses, some barefoot, others showing signs of having hastily dressed. A man in a loosely belted robe was yelling at a fireman, accompanying the tirade with wild gestures that, coupled with his unkempt appearance, lent him the air of a mildly deranged prophet. A paramedic attempted to gently, then forcefully steer him in the direction of a waiting ambulance. So much for the local authorities not being in the loop, said Sal. Liam shrugged. They still look plenty confused to me. Grace couldn't disagree, but having nothing to add, held her peace. The locals were clearly reacting to something, but for whatever reason, the emergency workers weren't seeing it. 
The other thing that no one seemed to be seeing was a little boy sitting in front of the half-raised garage door of one of the houses. Wordlessly, Grace tapped Menchu on the shoulder and pointed. The boy wasn't looking at anything in the street, but at the same time, it didn't have the unfocused stare of those blinded by their own private visions. Does anyone speak Turkish? asked Menchu. Only enough to buy coffee and cigarettes, said Liam. He shrugged at Sal's silent question. It wasn't always such a shining example of clean living. Menchu sighed. That's it, everyone is going to learn at least one new language a year from now on. Or what? asked Grace. Or I'll keep sighing about it a lot. Stop sighing, she said. Why? Because I speak Turkish. Grace liked Menchu's expression when she surprised him. It reminded her of how they looked when they first met. Grace approached the boy cautiously. She didn't want to scare him or whatever parent or caretaker might be keeping a distracted eye on him in the middle of the confusion. Hello, she began. Her Turkish had never gotten past the basics, but greetings were a safe place to start. The boy gave no sign that he had heard. Grace hunkered down near him, resting her weight easily on the balls of her feet. Do you need help? The boy turned himself slightly to watch the dead end of the street opposite the side blocked off by police and fire trucks. Closer, she was even more sure that his gaze was focused, not the vacant stare of a victim of shock or trauma. What are you looking at? She asked. The boy turned, blinked at her. She suspected it was a question none of the emergency workers had thought to ask. The man with the donkey, he said, and turned back to watch the end of the street. Grace followed his gaze and found that she could see them too. The man was dressed in mud-spattered furs, soft side in, designed for hard wear and long travel. The donkey was laden with packs piled so high they dwarfed the animal itself. They were both almost entirely translucent. Any color they had possessed in life had long ago bled away. The man leaned down as though to speak to the donkey, and the two of them walked through the wall of houses and out of sight. Sal took a deep breath and asked for clarification. A ghost, she said. An actual, honest-to-God ghost. When Grace nodded, she shuddered. They had left the scene and were circling around to the street one block over, in the direction the man and his donkey had gone. That is too freaky. That is too freaky, said Liam. So you've been possessed by a demon, violently exercised, and then you died. After all that, you're telling me a dead guy with a pack animal is a step too far. I know it doesn't make sense, said Sal. I just don't like ghosts. Blame camp. Boot camp? Summer camp, where you had to stay up late in the dark woods and pretend not to be scared when the counselors started telling stories about the girl with the golden arm or Bloody Mary or whatever it was. I don't like dead things that don't have bodies. Demons don't always have bodies, Manchu pointed out. Demons didn't used to be alive. There's a difference. But not logical, Sal pointed to herself. Aware, it's not logical. Doesn't stop it from being true. Don't worry, I can deal. Just give me a minute to, to have the heebie-jeebies over here. Grace, at the head of their little line, looked back and asked, are you done with that yet? Sal stopped, suspicious. Why? Grace pointed to the empty street about 10 meters ahead of them. Because the man and the donkey are right there. Sal blinked, and there they were. A ghost man and a ghost donkey, peaceably making their way up the street as though it were the most normal thing in the world. 
Sal tried to tell herself that the reality of looking at a ghost was not as bad as she had feared it would be. The whole translucent there, not there thing was weird as hell, but there was no blood, no grotesque signs of death. They were just minding their own business. Nope, still completely freaky. Is it strange that we can only see them once they've been pointed out to us? She asked. I think the strange part is that the ambulance workers didn't, said Liam. Ah, Manchu sounded like he had been mulling that one over. If someone told you they were hallucinating, would you ask them to show you what they were seeing? Sure, said Liam, before you joined the society. Probably not, he admitted. Grace cleared her throat. Aside from Sal's campfire stories, do any of you actually know anything about ghosts? A heavy silence fell. The man and the donkey kept walking. At least now they were moving down the street, not through any of the buildings. By unspoken agreement, the team followed half a block behind. Manchu spoke softly as they went on. Traditionally, ghosts are the wandering souls of the restless dead. They remain on earth because they have been bound in some way or because they have unfinished business to complete. Liam held up his smartphone and snapped a picture. He checked the screen. And they don't appear in photographs. That's great, said Sal. How do we get rid of them? At a guess, I'd say we should start by determining what brought them here. Liam already had his phone to his ear. Hey, uh, Santi, if we describe a ghost to you, can you or one of your minions tell us when and where he's from? There was a pause as Liam listened to the other side of the line. Yeah, we're sure. There was another pause. Off Sal's questioning look, Liam shrugged. Masanti says the ghosts have never been proven to exist. I don't know whether she's excited to have documentation of a new phenomenon or if she's annoyed at me for being so obviously wrong about what's going on. He addressed the phone again. I know you can hear me. Well, if we're wrong, then prove me wrong. Fine, then. I'm putting Father Menchu on the line. Menchu hesitated, then took the phone and brought Asante up to speed. He kept it professional, but then again, they were in the middle of what might be a crisis, so that only made sense, right? There was no sign that the man or the donkey had heard them, or if they did, that they cared. Then Sal stopped worrying about Menchu and Asante and whatever was going on between them and worried about herself. The man and his donkey had been joined by a small family group traveling on a cart. The cart wasn't being pulled by anything. Sal decided the lack of another ghost animal was not an improvement. Manchu noticed when Sal missed a step, saw the new ghosts, and passed along their descriptions as well. After a few more minutes, he hung up the phone. Santi's best guess is that we are looking at something in the form of a first or second century Central Asian trader. Still not willing to confirm it's a ghost, said Liam. Several ghosts, corrected Sal. Not yet, said Manchu. Sal wrinkled her nose. Does she know what they're doing? Asante thinks it has something to do with the reason we have jurisdiction here. Antakya, or more accurately, Antioch, was a western terminus of the old Silk Road connecting Rome with China and India. Technically, the trade route went all the way to Rome, but this was the border of the Roman Empire, so close enough. But why now? asked Grace. The Silk Road has been closed for centuries. These people have been dead for even longer. Why are we seeing streets full of ghosts tonight? Full of ghosts is a bit of an exaggeration, said Menchu. A train of pack mules and accompanying traders joined the procession. The team had to step aside so as to avoid being walked over. 
although it was unclear that the mules cared. One passing beside Grace snuffled in her direction, but on the whole, the group behaved as though the team wasn't there. Maybe not much of an exaggeration, Menchu allowed. Still waiting for an answer, said Grace. The team followed the ghosts as they reached the end of the street and passed through a half-ruined archway and into a plaza beyond. Hang on, said Sal. Where did the man with the donkey go? The rest of the procession was still there. The family in their cart, the line of pack mules and their drivers. But the man with the donkey was nowhere to be seen. Interesting, said Menchu. We have a bigger problem, said Grace. I'm not sure the ghosts disappearing on their own is actually a problem, said Sal. Grace crossed her arms. Maybe not, but has anyone seen Liam since we passed through that arch? The ghosts walked on through the silent plaza. Liam was nowhere to be seen. One moment, Liam was walking with the rest of the team, attention half not on tripping, half on his phone. Fortunately, ghosts weren't quite as rough on electronics as demons were. Although his phone was not exactly happy about what was going on around him, it was at least still readable. It was when he stepped from cobblestones onto hard-packed earth that he first noticed that something was wrong. A second later, there was a blast of cold air, and Liam looked up, only to find that the rest of his team and the city had disappeared. That was not good. The man with the donkey was still there, though, and he looked perfectly solid, opaque, and in living color. Nope, Liam thought, not good at all. You are listening to Book Burners, created and produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Bookburners is created by Max Gladstone and written by Max Gladstone, Margaret Dunlap, Amal El-Motar, Murr Lafferty, Andrea Phillips, and Brian Francis Slattery. Executive produced by Molly Barton and Julian Yap. Performed by Exe Sands. Audio production by Amanda Rose Smith with additional editing by Corey Barton. Original theme by Hashem Asadolahi, featuring Jody Redditch Ferber and mixed by Justin Morrell. Cover art by Annie Wu. Executive in charge for Realm, Mary Asadolahi. Find more shows like Book Burners by following Realm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at realm.fm.